Well, good morning, church family. It's great to be able to be with you. I trust that the time that we spend together now is going to be a blessing as we continue in our series in 1 Peter. If you've got your Bibles or reading devices open, I'd ask you to uh, turn them to 1 Peter chapter 2 if you haven't done that already. And we are continuing our series. And the message this morning is called Temporary Resident Baptist Church. And hopefully the reason behind that title will become obvious to you as we proceed through the message this morning. Several years ago, there was a story told of two Scottish Christians living in a small country town in Scotland. Uh, The lady's name was Mrs. Uh, McIntosh, and the other gentleman's name was Mr. McTavish. Uh, They were Christians, and over the course of many, many years, they had tried to attend different churches and found that there was no particular church in the local community of which they were a part that quite measured up. And so they had come to the place where they were worshipping on their own as a group of two people uh, every Sunday in the home of Mrs McIntosh. And one particular afternoon, Mrs McIntosh was standing at her fence talking to another Christian in the town. And he was concerned about the fact that these two folk had not been able to find a church where they could fellowship and had resorted to fellowshipping on their own. And he said to her during the course of the conversation, surely, Mrs. McIntosh, you don't believe that you and McTavish are the only Christians in this town. Mrs. McIntosh looked at him and leaned across the fence and she said, well, as a matter of fact, I do believe that. And she said, but to tell you the truth, sometimes I'm not so sure about McTavish. It's very easy as a Christian to end up in isolation. There's no pun intended with that. It's just a fact of life. How many Christians do you know over the course of your own Christian experience who have never been quite able to find a church where they feel that they can fit in or worship in or there's something wrong with the church, it doesn't preach the particular doctrines that we wanted to preach or uh, this doesn't happen or that doesn't happen. And at some point we just move on and ultimately we can end up like McTavish and McIntosh in isolation and worshipping on our own. But the thing about the Christian life is, and this is what Peter wants, where he wants to take us this morning, the thing about the Christian life is, is that it's not designed to be lived in isolation. Kim did a marvellous job last week in taking us through those first three verses of 1 Peter chapter 2. And if you look back on that message, the couple of things that said that Kim said that stood out to me uh, was particularly that phrase, are you living the full experience of the Christian life? I thought that was a great way of describing what Peter was talking about in those three verses. And you might remember that the essential point that Kim was making was that as Christians, we're called to put off the old life and to start living the new life uh, as a, uh, through feeding and, uh, and reading God's word. And the takeaway message for me was when you want to grow spiritually as a Christian, then you have to come to Jesus Christ. You come and you, you come to his word, you come to Jesus and Jesus becomes the source of our spiritual life. And so it's very clear that Peter in those three verses is talking about the experience that we're to have as Christians, as individuals. Unfortunately, 
Some Christians want to leave it at that. They have their wonderful relationship with Jesus. They love praying. They love reading the Bible. And it's very easy to slip into this idea that I can be a Christian on my own. But Peter won't have any of it. He won't allow us to do that in this passage because after those statements that he makes in verses 1 to 3, we have verses 4 to 10. And now what Peter begins to focus on is the church. And it's very clearly that he's moving now from these encouragements to grow in Christ to now talk about who we are in Christ and what our purpose is in Christ and how we do that collectively as a church. So I want to talk to you this morning as temporary residents in the same way that Peter was talking to temporary residents when he first wrote this letter and to recognise that the church is not a building. The church is about people. And this is why I've called this message Temporary Resident Baptist Church. Peter takes us a step further today. He wants us to understand what it means to live in community as a group of believers, to not live in isolation as Christians, but to be a group of people who find their identity and their purpose in Jesus Christ. Now, if you have a look at verse 4, the first thing that Peter talks about here is that we come to the living stone. Look at it in verse 4. Coming to him, coming to Jesus as to a living stone. So what Peter tells us here is, It all begins with Jesus. This experience of the Christian life, this personal experience that he wrote about in the first three verses, is founded around Jesus. We receive our life and we receive our continued life in Christ and our growth in Christ through him. Now, he says, when it comes to living collectively as a church, being the church together, what Peter is telling us is that that Jesus also, again, is the source of the life of the church. He talks and refers to him as the living stone. So he's talking about Jesus. And he asks us an important question. And there's two words I want to focus on that come out of the text. And as he talks about Jesus, really Peter asks us a challenging question. The first is, who is Jesus to you? Is he eklekton? Now have a look at verse 4. The question that he asks uh, in the second or or the statement he makes in the second part of verse four is he says that Jesus has been rejected by men. This living stone has been rejected, but he is choice and precious in the sight of God. Notice that word choice in verse four. The word is eklekton. And it's a really important word because the word implies favoritism. So when Peter describes Jesus as eklekton or choice, it's very clear that what Peter is saying is that Jesus, who has been rejected by the majority of of mankind, is actually God's favoured one. There's that implication of favouritism. It made me think of the baptism of Jesus and other occasions in his ministry. You may remember when the Father would speak from heaven And he would describe Jesus in terms something like this. This is my beloved son. And so Peter wants us to understand from the outset that this living stone, which has been rejected by humanity, is actually God's favoured one, Jesus. He is the eklekton. The other word that Peter uses here in verse 4 is 
he describes Jesus as being precious, or another way of describing that is honoured and valued. And in case we miss the point, you might notice that Peter actually refers to Jesus in this way on two occasions. So in verse 4, he describes him as choice and precious. If you go down to verse 6, sorry, down to verses 6 through 8, again, he uses those words that he is choice and precious. So that's the first question. Who is Jesus to you? Is he eclecton? Or is he scandalon? Have a look at verse 8. Verse 8 reads this way that this stone that has been rejected, this living stone that is not acceptable to the majority of people, is described in verse 8 as a stone of stumbling and a rock of offence. Now, to the Father and to us, as we've already seen, Jesus is eclecton. But for those who reject Jesus, the word that he uses here, this stumbling stone or this rock of offence, is scandalon. Notice the two terms he uses in verse 8. He says, he is a stone of stumbling. The idea there is referring not so much to the stumbling itself, but it's referring to the obstacle. So it's saying that for some people, in fact, many people, Jesus is an obstacle that they stumble over. The term is a stone of stumbling. But then the second word that he uses is that Jesus, for these people who have rejected him, is also a rock of offence. The word is a scandal on. Now, it's a really interesting word. It gives us our English word scandal. And so there's this sense here in which Peter is, is saying that for many people who reject Jesus, there's something scandalous about him. He's a scandal on. He's a rock of offence. It's a great word to describe what or who Jesus is to people who've rejected him. For example, one of the illustrations that was used to describe this word was to refer to a rock that pushes itself up from beneath the surface of the earth and starts to pop out above the surface of the earth. I remember reading years ago about a guy who had bought several acres of a country farm and he had to, one of his first jobs was to have to clear the farm because there was rocks everywhere, all these small rocks. And he said they spent several months clearing the decks and getting rid of all the rocks. And then winter came and he thought that they'd done a good job getting rid of all these surface rocks. But when winter came and the ground began to freeze, what he noticed was that all of these larger rocks began to be pushed up from beneath the surface of the ground and eventually protruded over the ground. They had a big job ahead. That's the idea here that Peter has in mind when he talks about scandal. It referred to a rock that popped up out of the surface of the earth. And if you were a traveller on a road, especially at night, and you were a careless traveller, you ran the risk of falling heavily over that stone. That's the word that uh, that Peter uses to describe Jesus as the scandal. He's a rock of offence. If you're not careful, you won't just stumble over him, but you'll fall over him drastically. The other illustration that was used to describe Scandalon was the referring to the bait on a stick. If you think of a trap that you use to trap an animal and you have the bait stick and you drop some bait on it, uh, the word Scandalon was used to describe this bait stick. And so if an animal was careless and not uh, taking care, 
he takes the bait and then wham, suddenly finds himself in the trap. That's this idea of scandal on. For people who are careless about Jesus, for people who are disobedient to Jesus, all of a sudden they become trapped. Have you ever thought of Jesus in these terms? I mean, it's a fascinating idea, isn't it? That Jesus is described with this word as the scandal on. Now, the picture, remember we're talking about the church here, and the picture that Peter has given us is of a building site. And the builders are working hard and they're looking for, uh, particularly in the ancient days, they're looking for that foundation stone upon which they will build and erect this building. And so they've gone through all of the stonework that they're looking at and they've come to a particular stone and they've rejected it. They've regarded that as that's worthless. It can't be used for this building as a foundation stone. But Peter turns it all on its head and he says that very stone that has been rejected is the very stone that has been chosen and it has become the chief or most important stone. The one that looked so repugnant and worthless has been taken by God and chosen as the stone that becomes the foundation of the whole building. Look at verses 6 to 8. Peter uses three quotes from the Old Testament that all have messianic overtones to describe this illustration of the building and referring to Jesus. He quotes from Isaiah 28 in verse 6. Then in verse 7, he quotes from Psalm 118. And then finally in verse 8, he quotes from Isaiah 8. Each of these passages, what they have in common is they're all messianic or have messianic overtones. And certainly the early Christians in the days of Peter understood that these passages applied to the Messiah. And here's the picture that he gives. He's Uh, As the word has been spoken, particularly through the prophet Isaiah, the the prophet is preaching to the people and he's bringing God's word to them. And it's a word of judgment. But the people in Isaiah's day are scoffing at this word of judgment. For example, let me read to you how it's put in Isaiah 28. The reference that we read in verse 6 is from Isaiah 28. And here's the attitude. Isaiah is preaching to these people, bringing them God's word. And here's the attitude. Here's the response, especially of the leaders who listen to Isaiah. And listen to it. This is what they say in response to Isaiah. Who does the Lord think we are, they ask? Why does he speak to us like this? Are we little children just recently weaned? He tells us everything over and over. Can you hear the arrogance? God tells us everything over and over. One line at a time, one line at a time, a little here and a little there. So Isaiah goes on and says this, Therefore, listen to the message from the Lord, you scoffing rulers in Jerusalem. You boast we have struck a bargain to cheat death and have made a great deal to dodge the grave. The coming destruction can never touch us, you say, for we have built a strong refuge made of lies and deception. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says, Look, I'm placing a foundation stone in Jerusalem, a firm and tested stone. It is a precious cornerstone that is a safe one to build on. Whoever believes need never be shaken. In response to their arrogance, in response to their rejection of God, Isaiah brings this powerful word from God. Peter takes that out of the Old Testament scriptures and he says that's exactly how the world responds to Jesus. The world 
rejects Jesus. They look at Jesus and they say he's worthless. Paul talked about that in 1 Corinthians. He said that for the Greeks, Jesus and the preaching of the cross was foolishness. For the Jews, it was a stumbling block, a rock of offense. And so he takes that and he says, this person, this living stone that you have rejected, he has become a scandal onto you, a rock of offense. You trip over him. You're caught in the trap. But it's not that Jesus is deliberately trying to trap people. These people are trapped by their own prejudices, by their own rejected of him, rejection of him. You reject him, says, says God, this son of mine, this one who is precious and highly valued and honored by me, he is the one that I will use to change the world. Think about what that meant for Peter and for the people that he wrote to. We said several weeks ago that Peter was writing to Christians who were living on the margins of the empire. You might remember that I said that we as Christians today are living on the margins of the empire, on the margins of our society. Think of what this passage of scripture meant for Peter's listeners as they had it read out in church the first time they ever heard it. You see, they lived in a society which told them over and over again that all of the power of the world was vested in Rome, that the most powerful man in the world, the emperor, resided in Rome, and that the most beautiful city in the world was Rome. That's where it was at. That was the culture. That's what it said. And we know from history that the Romans and the majority of the world at that time looked at the fledgling church, looked at the Christians, considered Jesus to have been crucified, and they said, Jesus is a king? You've got to be kidding. And who are you? This group of people who call yourselves Christians. Who are you? You have no power. You have no strength. You have no honor. Most of you don't even have buildings to worship in. Who do you think you are? The real power resides in Rome. God says this. He, this Jesus, is the foundation upon which I will build my church. And I will use these people because they are built on the living stone to change the world. People continue to stumble over Jesus today. For many people, most people in our society, Jesus is not eclecton. He is scandalon. People stumble over him. And the reason they stumble over him, if you look at verse 4 again, is because they reject him. He's described as the living stone rejected by men. What's interesting about that word reject is it refers to making a thorough examination of something and then determining that it's worthless. And so you repudiate it, you reject it, you look at it, but you conclude after examining it closely that it's worse, worthless, that it's useless. But here's the interesting thing. This rejection, the way it's phrased in the original is that it's a very decisive rejection and it also describes their ongoing attitude. It's not that they reject Jesus once and change their mind, but they continue to reject him. Very interesting. You see, it's one thing to look at the claims of Jesus and to reject him. It's another thing that when you keep bumping up against Jesus, and we will keep in our pursuit of spirituality, we'll, 
always run into Jesus. At some point, you have to be confronted and confront Jesus. It's one thing to reject him after looking at it and hearing about it for the first time. But as you keep running into Jesus in your search for spiritual truth, and the claims of Jesus are presented again and again. And I've seen this happen where claim after claim of Jesus is substantiated and yet people continue to reject. You have to conclude that they're no longer rejecting Jesus because there's not enough evidence. They're concluding, they're, they're continuing to reject Jesus because of their own prejudices and their biases. You've heard me talk about Lee Strobel before. Lee Strobel was a very honest seeker of Jesus. He spent two years investigating the claims of Jesus and the Christian faith. And he put those claims to the test over and over and over again. He tested the claims of Jesus and he would find as one objection was answered, he would raise another objection until there came this incredible moment when he was in his study and he was looking at his wall. It was covered up with covered over with all the objections and all the answers that he had given to his objections. And in honesty, and this is where we have to come to, folks, with Jesus, he looked at those objections and realized they'd all been answered. And he simply said, okay, God, you win. But some people aren't prepared to be that honest. Some people continue to reject Jesus because of their own prejudices and biases. That's what's built into the word scandal. The emphasis and the blame is not on Jesus. And if you look at verse 8, it says, these people stumble because they're disobedient to the word. To this doom they were appointed. It's not that Jesus has appointed them to doom. That's not what the passage is saying. What it's saying is that these people have chosen to disobey God, to disobey Jesus. And as a result of that, the inevitable thing that happens is doom. They will crash against the scandal on the rock of offense, Jesus this prejudice that exists in people, this bias against God, it's well summed up by an atheist philosopher, Thomas Nagel. You notice the bias here. You see, if we're going to approach spiritual matters honestly, we have to come with an openness. But listen to the bias here uh, in Thomas Nagel's words. He says, it isn't just that I don't believe in God. I don't want there to be a God. Did you hear that? It isn't just that I don't believe in God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. Here's the warning of verse 8. The warning of verse 8 is, if that is your continued attitude towards Jesus, then you will stumble over him. Do you know what's interesting about the word stumble? The word stumble kind of implies like you have a little trip. I mentioned earlier that you could come crashing down on the rock uh, if you were careless, if you tripped over it in the dark. The word stumble actually means slammed against. Isn't that powerful? You continue to reject Jesus. You will be stumble, You will be slammed against him as the rock of offense. Jesus spoke about this himself in his earthly ministry. Do you remember the parable he told of the, the owner of the vineyard who hired it out to some people and he went away for a long trip? And then he came back because he wanted to receive the rent. So on three occasions, he sent uh, three slaves who were beaten up and treated poorly by the people hiring the vineyard. And finally, the owner of the vineyard said, I will send my son. Surely they will respect my son. And the 
hire the people who had hired the vineyard concluded, here comes the son. If we kill him, then we can inherit the vineyard. So they treat the son shamefully, kill him and cast him outside. Jesus says, what do you think the owner of the vineyard will do? Of course, he's going to come and seek vengeance. Now, he told this parable against the Jews who were rejecting him. Jesus then makes this powerful statement as he gives the point or the punchline of the parable. He says this, he looked at them and said, Where, what then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. There are serious consequences when we refuse Jesus, when we reject him, he becomes scandalized. But as we've already seen, for God's people, he is the electon, he is choice, he is precious. And so we come to him as living stones. So I just want to very briefly talk to you about the living stones, us, just for a moment. Jesus is the living stone. But let's consider us as the living stones just for a very briefly. Look again at verse 5. He says, you come to him as living stones and are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. Do you know what's so great about that phrase? He says, you come to him as living stones. You all come as individuals, but you're being built into one house. Think about it. Back in chapter 1, verse 1, when Peter was writing to these Christians on the margins of the empire, you will recall that he was writing to Christians in five different provinces. So they're all in different areas around Asia Minor. But here's what Peter is saying. You might be scattered all through those five provinces and through those regions, and you might be living in different areas, but here's the wonderful thing. God is making you into one spiritual house. Isn't that a great point? That's what God does with his church. We all come from different backgrounds and different nationalities and different cultures and different experiences, but he makes us into one spiritual house. Folks, that's what the real church is. It's you and me being made together into one spiritual house. We come to the living stone who has given us life and we are living stones. And he goes on to describe those living stones and he does it with two phrases. The first that he says is that we are a people with purpose. As I said, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this. It's so clear. Look at verse 9. Here is our purpose. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Those four terms that Peter uses, and I like that last phrase, a people for God's own possession, because it actually refers, it can be translated as my spiritual treasure. We are God's spiritual treasure. What a great thought. Those four terms that Peter used here to describe the church were four terms that were used by God to describe the nation of Israel. And when he described Israel in that way, he said, and the purpose behind it is, he says, you are my chosen race, my royal priesthood, a holy nation. You are my special treasured possession. And the reason that you are that, God said to Israel, is that you will declare the light or my light into the whole world. Israel was to become a light to the whole of the world. We step into the New Testament and we as God's people, as Gentile have been grafted in with the Jews and he has made us into one house, Paul says in Ephesians. 
And what does he say of the church? He takes those same expressions that he used to describe Israel. And he says here very clearly, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for my own possession, my treasured possession. And what's the purpose? We are a people with purpose. It's to proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's our purpose as a church. But we are also a people with an identity. Look at verse 10. You once were not a people. This is great stuff, isn't it? You once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. It's a marvellous expression of the identity that we have in Christ, that we are now his people and we have received his mercy and his grace poured out on us. We are people with an identity. We have a purpose. We have an identity. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul speaks about Christ as the foundation stone upon which the church is built. The idea is of a cornerstone. And in buildings in the ancient times, what they would do is they would find the cornerstone and they would lay that first. And every wall that was built from that moment on, every brick that was laid, took its line and form from that foundation stone. And Peter is picking up on that similar thought here in chapter 2 of his letter. Christ is the cornerstone upon which the church, we, the living stones, are built. We take our line our direction, our form from him. In other words, it's Jesus who sets the direction of the church. It's Jesus who gives the line of the church. So just to close quickly this morning, I just want to give some brief applications of what this means for us. I want to welcome you this morning to the church of the temporary resident. And why I'm calling the church at the church of the temporary resident is for one reason. Folks, the church is not a building. At WBC, we are blessed with great facilities. We have magnificent facilities, and I am grateful for the people who have gone before us in this church who had the vision and the foresight to build the facilities that we've got. We are blessed, aren't we? We are truly blessed. But here's the thing. These buildings and facilities that we have are not the church. The church is you and me, built on the chief cornerstone, Jesus Christ. So let me speak to you just for a moment in closing about building for eternity. As a church, as one part of the body of Christ, Jesus is our cornerstone. We take our line and direction from him. At Woodvale Baptist Church, folks, it has to be and must always be about people and not the building. Buildings are temporary, but God and his people are permanent. We are temporary residents, yes, but we have a permanent home in heaven, a great hope to look forward to. Buildings are temporary, but God and his people are permanent. You might remember a couple of months ago that we took part in the National Church Life Survey. And to wrap things up this morning, I just want to give you some of the initial results are back for us as a church. This is what we filled in and said in the survey. I just want to share it with you briefly and tie it all together this morning. 
we said some really good things about our identity of, of who we are as a church. Did you know that 41% of us at Woodvale Baptist Church were born overseas? 41% of us were coming from all different cultures and backgrounds. I think that's a great strength that we have. I'll bet you didn't know this. 18% of us at Woodvale Baptist Church speak a language other than English at home. We are a multicultural church. We come from different backgrounds. But here's the wonderful thing. We're built on the cornerstone of Jesus, and he is building us into one spiritual house. That is to be celebrated. 32% of us are new to WBC in the last five years. In the last five years, 32% of our congregation have come in that time frame. So we're coming from all sorts of backgrounds. I was encouraged by this. 84% of us are saying at WBC that we have a strong sense of belonging. I found that very encouraging. I also found this encouraging, that 88% of us are saying at WBC that we are inclusive of different kinds of people. That is a strength that we should celebrate as a church. This is also encouraging for me as a pastor to read this. 69% of us said in the survey that prayer and reading scripture is something that we do either every day or most days. I find that particularly gratifying. That lays a good foundation for us to grow spiritually, folks. This is also encouraging. 98% of us are saying at WBC that our faith influences our decisions and actions in daily life. That is to be celebrated because what we're saying is that our faith means something to us and it's not just something we do on Sunday, but it influences what we do and what we say through the week. That is to be celebrated. That's our identity. But what about our purpose? And folks, here's where it gets... <coughs> Pardon me. Here's where it gets challenging. We have 5% of our congregation are under the uh, 15 years of age and under. Above that age, our average age as a church is 62 years of age. Folks, the challenge is that we must reach the next generation. We must reach our community with the gospel. 38% of us said that we've invited friends and relatives to a church service in the past year. That's encouraging. But only 26% of us are comfortable speaking about our faith or looking for opportunities. <coughs> Pardon me. What that's telling me, folks, is the challenge before us. We, if we do not reach the next generation, if we do not reach out into our community, then we will continue to age as a congregation and we will end up with just a building. And that is not the church. That is the challenge I want to leave you with this morning. A challenge that focuses us as a church on discipleship, on reaching out, on reaching the next generation, on building something that is being built for eternity, something that is going to last beyond a building. We don't want to end up with an empty building. As, as Peter encourages us, and with this I close, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. God bless you. Have a great week. I hope to be with you next week in person. Thank you for sharing with me this morning. God bless.